you would please stand for the reading of 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 16. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. The word of the Lord. We uh, continue our series of sermons that we have uh, entitled, While You Wait. Uh, these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, are, are really about the return of Christ. Paul the Apostle is writing to this young church in Thessalonica, this large, prosperous, idolatrous city in uh, Macedonia. He's writing to them, and he's teaching them about the return of Christ. But the way he's approaching that is, is not only telling them what's going to happen in the future, but also telling them how the future hope affects us now. It's very important to connect eschatology to our life now. This is not just something we believe, the facts about the future, but it's also something that affects us today. So last week we looked at the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians and we considered how we might know whether we are genuine believers and should be excited about his coming or we should be, uh, we should be scared of his coming. So we looked at that 
and talked about faith, hope, and love as the traits of the genuine Christian. Today, we're looking at the second chapter where Paul discusses his ministry and more broadly describes what we all should be doing until Jesus comes back. So as we wait, as you wait, what are we supposed to be focused on is the question I'm going to try to answer this morning. Our outline is simple. We'll first look at our mission while we wait, secondly at our motivation for that mission, thirdly at our message, and finally at our method. So mission, motivation, message, and method. Okay, so let's, let's consider this. Why, why did Paul and Silas and Timothy and all the other missionaries in the New Testament, why did they do what they did? Why did they come to Thessalonica? Why did they go from city to city preaching this gospel? Why were they willing to suffer persecution? Paul mentioned that they had been shamefully treated at Philippi. And if you read Acts 16, you will learn that Paul and Silas were publicly humiliated by being beaten with rods and thrown in jail, from which the Lord miraculously rescued them. In Thessalonica, too, they had much conflict and were forced to leave the city before they were able to really establish this young church. At the end of our passage in verses 14, 15, and 16, Paul writes about his fellow Jews constantly opposing the missionaries, hindering them from speaking to the Gentiles and driving them out from various cities. So what was their mission that was worth all of that. And as you consider many Christians in the world today, and here in Pastor Ranjan this morning, reminds us of just how dangerous it is to, to be a Christian in many parts of the world. We have forgotten that. In many parts of the world, it's risky to be a Christian, much less to be a herald of the gospel. So what is it that drives people in Arissa to preach the gospel? What is it that drove Paul and Silas and Timothy to preach the gospel. Well, Paul says that they were preaching to the Gentiles that they might be saved, verse 16. That they might be saved. In verse 12, he says that God calls people into his own kingdom and glory. Paul and his fellow missionaries understood their work in cosmic terms. What they were saying, what they were doing, had the power to transfer people from the kingdom of this world, where they were waiting for God's judgment, to God's kingdom, where they would be waiting for the king's return. This is how they saw their mission. This is not just going from city to city and talking to people. This is transferring people from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God, from darkness into light. That's what they were doing. In Colossians 1, verse 13, Paul tells us that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the mission. That's that's what we're doing. Paul's mission was to declare that Jesus came to save us, that that he came to free us, that he came to redeem us, to forgive us, to bring us into relationship with God, 
to bring us into God's kingdom. Now, even now. But certainly when it is fully established at his coming. Now this is the mission. It's no less than the redemption, restoration, and renewal of all creation. God's kingdom taken over the kingdom of darkness. And it's accomplished through making disciples of Jesus. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he left a clear purpose statement for the church. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, this is a passage we use often at Chatham. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That was Paul's message and his mission. That's what he was doing. And that is our mission too. It's not just the apostolic mission. It is the Christian mission. All believers are to participate in making disciples. Now remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul praises the Thessalonian believers. He says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And we talked about it last week that the apostles actually had to change their traveling plans because the gospel has already gone forth in the areas they were planning to go to. Because the Thessalonians took this mission to heart and said, we, we will preach the gospel. We will make disciples in Macedonia and Achaia and even beyond our area. Now, we may have different roles in this mission, but we do have the same mission. Preaching, raising children in the faith, working a secular job in a distinctly Christian way, sharing the gospel with your neighbor, serving as a missionary, supporting a missionary, helping the poor in your community, teaching Sunday school. All of these, all these things are aspects of disciple-making. How does your life reflect this mission? Brothers and sisters, we, we have to come to grips with this because Scripture commands us to make disciples. This is why we're here. This is why we're waiting for Jesus to return. And until he comes, this is our job, is to make disciples. So how is your life connected to that mission, directly or indirectly, but how are you involved in making disciples of Jesus? That's what we're supposed to be doing. Now look with me at verse 3. Paul says, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Now he wants to give us a little more context for how this mission is being accomplished. One commentator paraphrased it. He said, In the gospel appeal to the Thessalonians, the message was not false, the motivations were not impure, and the methods were not deceptive. So let's look at how we, we can fulfill this mission while still taking care of our motivation, focused on the message, and making sure we're using the right methods. So let's look at the motivation next. 
Paul goes through quite a few wrong motivations here. Now, I'm not sure if maybe people were accusing him of that. Maybe there was some personal criticism towards him and Timothy and Silas. Maybe he's defending his ministry by listing these motivations. But we certainly know that these are common things that we encounter in the world and in the ministry. Maybe Paul is simply contrasting his ministry with those of many other traveling teachers. There were many who would come to Thessalonica and other cities and would preach a particular message. And many of them were charlatans who were taking advantage of people. So Paul says that he did not do it for money in verse 5. In fact, he says he worked a job, probably making tents, which was his trait. While he was in Thessalonica, he worked hard just to remove any appearance of profiting from them. Paul says he didn't do it for power either, and that's in verse 6. The missionaries could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but instead they were gentle. You know, they didn't throw their weight around and lead in a way that was domineering or oppressive in any way. They also did not see glory and praise from people in verse 6 again. They didn't do it for the approval of others, for the respect of others. And because of that, they, did not, they didn't flatter their listeners. They didn't say things they wanted to hear, but they spoke the truth to them. Now, those are wrong motivations. Money, power, praise. Now think about how much damage has been done to the mission of Christ by the wrongly motivated Christians. So many leaders brought shame to Jesus by their pursuit of money, power, and popularity. Of course, we can all think, and I'm sure you're thinking right now, of specific high-profile pastors or politicians or evangelists that fell in a scandalous public way. And that is incredibly damaging to the church when that happens. We see that even in our own communities. We see when a pastor falls and when it's discovered that he was embezzling or that he had an affair or that he just treated everybody on staff poorly. And that is discovered and the pastor is removed without repentance. It's tremendous damage that's done to the church because it tells everybody in the community that what was happening in the church, it wasn't real that it was pretending, that there were other motivations that were pursued besides the pure motivation of having people, people's lives changed by the gospel. But we, we don't need to go to the news to discover these wrong motivations. I only need to go to my own heart to see all of these things present in myself. Many people are like me in our churches who are hindering the mission of Jesus by our wrong motivations. Whenever we discipline our children so that they do not embarrass us in front of others, and that's your motivation. Whenever we hold on to a leadership role so that we would not lose control. Whenever we are concerned with our brand and beg for likes online. Whenever we build our own kingdom, maybe a very small kingdom, but our own kingdom, whenever we get bitter about the lack of recognition by others, those are all wrong motivations that hurt the work 
of the gospel. Maybe not in a scandalous kind of public way, but still, every time we do something out of those motivations to get profited from someone ourselves, to get their respect and praise through false misrepresentations of something. Whenever we, we try to exalt ourselves and, and even in a, in a fake, humble way to, to point to ourselves, whenever we do that, we take our focus off of Christ. And every, every leader struggles with that. Please don't get the idea that, that some are immune from that. We're all broken sinners that are dealing with these things. The question is, are we, are we on guard against doing good things for the wrong reasons? Are we so careful with our own hearts that we examine ourselves and say, am I doing this for the right reasons? This is the right thing to do, but am I doing it for the right reason? We have to ask those questions to ourselves, but we also have to allow other people to speak into our lives and challenge us and be able to be humble and say, this, this isn't about my reputation, so I don't need to be defensive. But tell me if you see that my motives may be wrong. Somebody once told John Bunyan, that, that famous Puritan, that he had preached a great sermon And Bunyan responded, you are too late. The devil told me that before I left the pulpit. (laughs) This is the struggle of the preacher. It is very hard to discern for a preacher whether I'm preaching so you would like me, so you would agree with me, so you would think the sermon was great, or so that God would be pleased with me. All pastors struggle with that. We struggle with seeking glory from people. And Paul says, this is not the right motivation. Just because people like you and you can get them to like you isn't the reason to preach. And if we give in to that, and I don't know where you're at, I don't know if it's about parenting for you or ministry in the church or at work or in relationships, wherever you are, wherever you're struggling with wrong and right motivations, we can't give in to that. We have to fight it. Because if we give in to that, if we allow ourselves to function out of wrong motivations, we will eventually compromise the whole thing. What is the right motivation then? Look at verse 4. Paul tells us what the right reason is for preaching the gospel and for doing good things to other people and for serving them and making disciples. In verse 4 he says, Just as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Having received God's approval, this is crucial here, having received God's approval, we participate in his mission because he has entrusted it to us. That's why we should be making disciples, is because God has approved us to do the work that he has given us for his own sake. Ravi Zacharias said, the Christian, because of who he is, determines what he must do. The Christian, because of who he is, determines what he must do. Our motivation doesn't come from others, but from God himself. 
if we have God's approval because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and in the empty tomb, I can fight my desire for the approval of others. If I know who I am in Christ, if I know that I am beloved of God, adopted into his family, redeemed by the blood of Christ himself, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, well, then I can do what I've been called to do with the right motivation. Does your motivation to do whatever good things you're doing in life, does it come from your relationship with God and His call on your life? Is God the motivation? Or is it other people? Or is it what you receive from what you're doing? One writer put it this way, we sacrifice for what satisfies. We sacrifice for what satisfies. The soul-satisfying riches in the presence of God propel us out of our comfort zones, calling us out of the warm confines of our beds to our knees in early morning prayer and meditation on God's Word. Only these soul-satisfying riches can sustain us in the rigors of God's calling on our lives. As we move out to proclaim his name to the nations across the street and across the globe. A heart for mission grows out of a soul that finds satisfaction in God's presence. How do you, how do you deal with wrong motivation? Well, you, you go to God and you let him deal with that. You go to him and you experience who he is and you root yourself again in who he has remade you in Christ. And as you, as you get that identity into your bones again, you minister out of that, you serve out of that, and you find new strength to sacrifice because you are satisfied in who God has made you to be through Christ. That's our motivation. It's not an easy solution. It's not a formula you can just do it right now and be done with any sort of struggle inside. No, it's not like that. But it's a powerful thing to have God's presence in your life, to seek him, to be transformed by his love. It changes you, and it changes your motivation as well. Well, let's look at our message. If our mission is to make disciples, if our motivation is God himself, what is it that we proclaim because Paul tells us that we make disciples by declaring the gospel, the means of transformation that we seek for ourselves and for others is the message of God. Of course, what Paul means is the proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. He means the announcement that God became human, that he lived a perfect life among us, that he has perfectly fulfilled all of God's requirements in our place. That he suffered and died instead of us. That he rose from the dead in victory on our behalf. That he ascended into heaven to rule at the Father's right hand and is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom forever. That's the message. That's the message. 
Paul means the gospel of grace. That all these benefits of Christ's work on the cross and in the empty tomb, all these benefits like forgiveness of sins, the hope of being with God forever, relationship with God now and into eternity, participation in the renewal of the world, the presence of the Holy Spirit, all these benefits are ours by grace. Because God is a gracious God, and he offers himself to us through Christ by grace. Paul means the gospel that when this gospel is accepted by faith, it continues to work in us, this message that we have. It's not just preached once. It is preached continuously. It is accepted continuously, repeatedly by faith. And as it works its way into our hearts, it changes us. Now in verse 13, Paul says that this, this word of God is at work in you. It's at work in you. They've already preached it. They've accepted it. And now this word is working in them, changing them into the image of Jesus. This is the message that Paul and Silas and Timothy proclaimed when they were in Thessalonica. This is the message that the Thessalonians proclaimed in Macedonia and Achaia and beyond. This is the message we proclaim today at Chatham. This is the message Pastor Ron John and many other pastors are proclaiming in Arissa. And this is the message that changes people. Notice that when Paul speaks about the gospel in this chapter, he is careful to say that this is the gospel of God. Gospel of God. It's actually unusual in Scripture. Usually it's the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the Lord, gospel of grace. But here's the gospel of God. Why? Because this message does not have a human origin. It comes from God directly. Paul received it from Christ himself. The church received it from Christ. It's his authoritative word to the world. Paul did not come up with it. He's careful to tell us this is, I mean, he says it's my gospel in chapter 1, and now he says this is the gospel of God. This gospel came from God to him, and he's grabbed onto it, but it didn't come from him. No matter what some of the modern scholars may tell us, Paul did not invent Christianity. He didn't take some of these weird teachings that he heard from others, and then he put it together in this new package. He simply preached what he heard from Jesus, what he read in his word what he heard from the apostles of Christ. I mean, this message is not human. It's divine. It's supernatural. And so we preach today what was entrusted to us. We don't change it. We don't invent our own message. When Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica, this is in verse 13. The believers there received it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. I love the way he puts it. They took it for what it really is. It's the word of God. It's the gospel of God. It came from him. And they saw it, and they embraced it by faith that this is the word that comes from God to us. 
with all the authority and integrity of God himself. One of our highest values here at Chatham, and it has been for generations, is to communicate God's word truthfully and consistently. Because this is God's word, we dare not mess with it because it's not our word. It's not our teaching. It's not our message. It is God's message. It's been entrusted to us. It's been given to us so that we can speak it. But we don't get to define what it is. We can't change it. We can't tailor it to fit our purposes or our preferences, much less the purposes and preferences of our culture. We can only proclaim it as faithfully as we know how. This is why we are so careful. And if you're new to Chatham, you, you should be noticed that, noticing it even now. We're so careful to declare the gospel every Sunday. You shouldn't come to Chatham and leave and wonder what the gospel is and wonder how we feel about God's word. You should leave knowing that we trust it, that we obey it, that we want to preach it faithfully because it's God's word to us and it comes with God's authority and it goes into our hearts and into our lives and it changes us, it works in us and it transforms us. That's what we do. That's how this mission of making disciples is accomplished. That's the engine. It's God's word proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, briefly, what is our method? My last point. What is our method? We already learned that Paul was focused on proclaiming the gospel. But what was the context of that proclamation? How did he do it? And this is where we get the, these two sections in our, in our chapter that, that are so emotional. They're, Paul is so open. He bears his soul. He lets us know how he really feels about the Thessalonians. I, I love seeing passages like that in Scripture because it tells us what kind of person he was. And I connect with that. I feel some of these things about you too. Look at verses 7 and 8. It said, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. That's how Paul sees his ministry. And then look at 11 and 12. So there's the motherly affection in verses 7 and 8, but then there's the, the fatherly responsibility and instruction in verses 11 and 12. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory i love the balance like a mother like a nursing mother who has committed her life to the infant her own child her whole life has now been put under the authority of this one little baby because she loves him and so she gives her life to the baby there's so much affection there's so much desire for the child to to grow and become who he is supposed to be it's so tender. There's so much nurture here. That's one aspect. The other aspect is like a father 
who instructs and exhorts and, and makes sure you understand how to live your life. There's intentionality and responsibility here. And Paul says, both like a mom and a dad, I have been with you. I have loved you. You've gotten the whole picture of how the parents love their children with great affection and also great instruction. And so he tells us that the context of this mission coming to fruition in, in Thessalonica is relationships, is love. Paul is not advocating for impersonal mass marketing as the best way to get the gospel to the people. Notice how he's not saying, you know what, if we just pull enough money together, you know, we can probably buy enough ads that every TV station in the world and every radio station in the world and every social media platform will communicate the message of the gospel. He's saying that's a terrible idea. That's not how the gospel spreads. It spreads through relationships. I mean, sure, you can hear the gospel on the radio, sure. It's not ineffective. It's important to use all sorts of means. But how does the gospel get into your heart? How do you grow in Christ? How do you really come to grips with what the message actually is? It's through spiritual moms and dads in your life. For the gospel to really grow, you need someone to parent you. You need someone to disciple you, someone to mentor you. Paul exhibits this, this mother-like affection and tenderness and father-like instruction and responsibility. He says this is the context. This is the method of communicating the gospel. It's personal. I'm going to refer to Pastor Ranjan again because I was very much affected by his testimony in Sunday school. He talked a lot about love as the method of their ministry in Orissa, India. What are they doing there? They're loving people who hate them. They're loving people who are angry with them. And through their love, through the love of the Christians, people learn of the love of God. That's the methods. That's the channel. That's no different here. It's no different anywhere in the world. If, we, if our message is about a God who loves us, should we not love the people we are communicating his love to? If our message is about a God who sacrificed himself for us, should we not sacrifice ourselves for others? Jesus came to us. And when he came, he not only communicated the message of salvation through his teaching. He did that. There's a verbal communication that must happen. But he shared himself with us. Much like Paul says, I, we, you become so dear to us. We have so much affection. We, we've shared not only the gospel of God, but ourselves with you. We've loved you. We've been with you. You know us. Notice how many times in this epistle he, he tells them, you know what we were like. Why would he say that if they didn't know? Oh, they knew. They knew how he worked. They knew how he spent time with them. They knew them. And so through these relationships, through our love shown to other people, the gospel gets into their lives. That is how it happens. It's never about a more effective way to communicate. Now, we should work at that, sure. But it's not really about that. It doesn't depend on that. It depends on the love of the Christians, loving others and sharing the gospel with them. So how do you know 
if you are making disciples? This was a, a question that I, I asked myself. I'm, I'm still, I'm wrestling with this. I won't tell you how I answered it. I'm wrestling with this still. But ask yourself, do you feel mother-like affection towards someone? Do you exercise father-like responsibility towards someone? Do you love those that you are speaking the gospel to? If you answer yes, you're making disciples. That's, that's how it happens. But it has to be on that level. It has to be on the level of loving relationships. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, we see everything we have talked about right at this table. We see our mission, focusing on Jesus, following him and pleading with others to join us. We see our motivation here too. God, God has done something. God has changed us. And God has entrusted this work to us, to the church. He has called us. We also see our message, the gospel of God. Through Christ, his broken body and spilled blood, we can have a relationship with God, forgiveness of sins. We see that message right on this table, broken body, spilled blood for our sakes so we would be reconciled to God. And we also see our method. You know, we don't take communion just by ourselves, individually. We do it together. We come together. We walk together. Somebody brings it to us. We do it as a community of Jesus, as we follow him together in relationships based on God's love to us in Christ. And this is what we have to share with our community. And so when we speak the gospel to people around us, to people who don't believe in Jesus, we tell them to come. Come and see what Jesus is like. Come and see what Jesus is like in our midst. See it for yourself and embrace him as your Savior. So if you're not a believer this morning, I'm, I'm speaking to you, and I want you to consider Jesus. Consider what he has done for you. Consider that he sacrificed his own life for you, that he rose again in your place to give you this new existence with God forever. All of that is by grace. Nothing is required of you. You don't have to clean up your life. God will do that, and yes, he will. But as you come to him, you come by grace and you simply thank him in faith that he did this for you and you embrace him and you experience his love for you.